Welcome in to an early Thursday afternoon edition of the Locked On Knicks podcast. Uh, the Knicks are keeping Scott Perry as general manager. We get into that and the addition of Brock Aller from the Cleveland Cavaliers front office. And then we're going to start our best moments series. Actually, with sort of a an abbreviated one in a way because we just spent so much time talking about it previously with our great guests over the last couple weeks. But today we're going to break down the best moments of the 50s through the 90s. And we've narrowed it down to five best moments and a number of honorable mentions. So we are going to get into those next on Locked on Knicks. You are locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. I'm Gavin Shaw. Across my computer screen and across the river is Alex Wolf. And uh, we're, we're getting into a pretty loaded episode, Alex. We, we got we got some big Knicks front office news, and then we're, we're kind of diving deep back in time to look at the best moments of the New York Knicks history pre-2000. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, there is quite a bit going on. I mean, so first off, we may as well get into the, the news that set Twitter ablaze yesterday. Um, first, well, first off, the the first news that came out, which due to going through all of our uh, our history shows and everything, we hadn't really gotten into, but the Knicks hired Brock Aller from Cleveland uh, last week, and they he was previously just sort of their capologist, um, but they hired him away as their, I guess I I don't know what you call it, like depending on where you read it, it depends on what his role is going to be. He might either just be like the numbers man for the Knicks. Um, there's talk that he's going to um, definitely be, you know, making a say in the, you know, the cap and everything. Uh, there was reports that like when he was in Cleveland, some of the moves that he was making were like so deep state uh, CBA type stuff that the NBA had to sit for like hours and like pour over the CBA to, you know, check the language and make sure things were legal and whatever to get certain things done. Um, so that's cool. I like having a guy that's super smart with the cap. Uh, there's also talk that he's going to potentially streamline the Knicks front office a little bit, like be in charge of sort of a restructuring, uh, potentially letting some staff go that is just accumulated from regime to regime. Um, knowing how James Dolan usually operates, I really honestly would not be surprised if there was still like some scouts and stuff that were here from like the Isaiah years even, uh, because it seems like Dolan just doesn't like to be the bad guy that often and fire people unless it's the very top person. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he's, he's doing that. But then also some people are implying that he might have some more say in actual basketball ops as well. 
which I don't know. I mean, Cleveland put together some pretty damn good teams around LeBron. Uh, they were lucky enough to have LeBron come back, which probably made that easier, along with having uh, like three out of four number one picks for that little stretch there where they ended up with Anthony Bennett, who was awful, but then Kyrie Irving and uh, Andrew Wiggins, who they wound up trading for Kevin Love. But, you know, obviously he did help build a championship team. So that's that's good. Uh, then the other news that was more what caused outrage was that the Knicks had the audacity to announce that they picked up Scott Perry's option for his final. Well, I don't know if it's the final year of his contract or if it was for like two years or what it was, but they picked up his option. Basically, they had a mutual option uh, that kicked in on May 1st. And so even with everything going on with the virus right now, that didn't change. Apparently, uh, that date wasn't pushed back or anything. So the Knicks had to make a decision, and they decided to pick up Perry's option for the next year to be their GM still under the new president, Leon Rose, and alongside the new hire, uh, Brock Aller, whose official title, I think, is VP of Basketball Strategy or something like that. Um, So Perry is still going to be the GM. Gavin, I don't know. to, To me, I don't know where you stand on this. I think based off where everything is with um with the virus and everything else that this sort of makes sense um and i honestly think you know i've made a case a couple times i don't know if i've made it so much on here because we haven't been doing quite as much current events on here lately uh but i've definitely made it on a couple other podcasts or or i was on like nick's fan tv the other day or whatever that the Knicks should maybe look into keeping mike miller uh for another year you know just for this coming year almost as like a second interim stint um but maybe like with a second year on the contract just so that he could feel comfortable, but you know, maybe with an option on it or something, I don't know, something along those lines, but continuity seems kind of important right now, considering that it's hard to really do hirings right now when you can't have people in, in person, like New York is locked down. So like the only way you're getting an interview right now is over, you know, the internet. Um, And I, you know, I think there's something to be said for meeting people in person and really hashing things out that way. Um, Plus, you know, whoever it is would probably want to see Madison Square Garden and the offices and everything else. Uh, So I think keeping Perry just for continuity's sake, for easing Rose's transition into a top basketball executive position, which he's never had before. And Perry is kind of a basketball lifer, as people like to say. He's, you know, he's been working in NBA front offices since, like, 2000 roughly I think was when he started uh, as a scout for the Pistons and then you know he was in a a higher spot for them you know in the early 2000s to mid 2000s and then has been an assistant GM ever since like 2012 or something I think with the Orlando Magic so I don't have a huge problem with it also the way that the NBA is conducting the draft process this year where from what I understand, and I don't think this is softened at all, teams are not allowed to request any workout video from players, and they're not allowed to host workouts this time around. So pretty much all they have is scouting and game tape from the college season. I think it's kind of valuable to have a guy in Perry around still, at minimum for the draft, um, just because I think he has a decent enough eye in the draft, uh, and I did a breakdown for SI about that. And, you know, I think that it's just valuable to have someone who's been preparing for the draft all year 
to stick around through the draft, particularly when you can't even get the benefit of having workouts and whatever. And, you know, maybe in terms of, of Perry uh, and, you know, it's difficult to attribute what was Perry's decisions and what were Mills's decisions and whatever under the Perry and Mills regime. But like, maybe it's better that Perry can't have workouts anyway, because ultimately that was what led them to draft Kevin Knox over McCall or Miles Bridges, uh, because Knox like smoked uh, Miles Bridges in a workout. And that was apparently enough to sell the Knicks. So, yeah, I don't know. That was a lot of a lot of thoughts, Gavin. But what are, what are your thoughts on these two hires, really? Yeah, um, all are not a ton. I mean, it's always good to have a great cap guy. I'm not sure how much I trust Dan Gilbert's endorsement, but if he's good, he's good. And Leon Rose would would know, assuming Aller's tenure extended back to LeBron's first run with the team. I, I trust that he'd have a pretty good gauge of that. Um, with Perry, I, I mean, I made my thoughts pretty clear. I'd rather, at least long term, they, they bring in someone else to be the GM, I think. There are better options out there, and it just it should be on the Knicks to find them. Like he, he just as I've noted, seems by and large average to me. But I mean, to your point, it's 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 really really difficult to separate um, what were his decisions and what were Mills's decisions. And I mean, this is good in the sense that he gets a fair shot. And I'm absolutely in agreement with you. Um, whether or not he remained GM long term. Um, I'm happy he's staying with the organization, particularly through this draft, because I, I just logistically, I think it would be really, really difficult to coordinate a draft with someone um, that the rest of the front office didn't know or if they wanted to bring in their own guys and just orchest or incorporating those people into like the infrastructure the Knicks already have. Um, and if you clean house like how well is the draft going to go again? I mean, the draft is such a crapshoot anyways, and it's not like the NFL draft where you're picking seven guys. It's only uh, two or three players. So maybe that would have made a difference and maybe it ultimately wouldn't have mattered that much. But uh, I think it does make quite a bit of sense that he's staying on for the draft a little bit. I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you on Miller as well, especially when there's no guarantee we'll, we'll even have an NBA season next year. Or if we do, it could be extremely abbreviated, depending on what happens with all of this. So I, I think there is certainly an argument to be made for stability in, in a long term sense. My, my gut instinct is he's not the answer. I really outside of drafting, I haven't loved the Knicks approach to team building. But again, you, you can argue the influence of Rose relative to the influence of someone like Mills um, turns Perry into much more of a plus at, at his job than he currently is. And I'm, I'm with the arguments you've made in the past that his drafting record is all in all uh, pretty, pretty darn good. Uh, so th- th- that's really the the sum of it, Alex. I, I'm, I'm kind of ready to, to get into like the top moments unless unless you had anything you wanted to add. Yeah, I just I, well, I wanted to say I'm actually kind of surprised that you're that you're so chill with it. I I, I was expecting that you might be like one of the type of people that's up in arms about it. But I, yeah, it, it's basically exactly what you just said with Perry. Like, I just don't. I, OK, I guess we'll just end on this. Like, do you think because to me, I think that based off of the two moves that Mills made with no adult supervision, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he was the sole basketball executive before the Knicks hired a new GM in Perry after the Phil Jackson stuff. Uh, the two moves that he made were to give Tim Hardaway Jr. a huge contract and to give Ron Baker about three times more money than he ever deserved um, to keep him around, only to give him limited minutes for 
a year and change and then cut him. Um, to me, most of the like, most of the moves, other than I think Alfred Payton, which I, I think Alfred Payton and Hazonia both sort of have the uh, Perry, you know, mark on them. I think because yeah. they were they were former Perry guys. I feel I'd like love he if probably... he stamped players that he specifically signed. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like I, I feel like on the contracts. <laughs> I feel like if we could find the actual contracts, they would have Perry stamps on them. <laughs> but, like, as far as the other signings, I think a lot of them sort of reek of Mills's sensibilities. Um, and maybe that's not even 100% true. Like, I also think that I think that Perry, at the very least, values a certain type of point guard, um, which is to say, like, the the Moutier or DSJ type. But I think that as far as like the score first, like forwards and stuff that don't really play defense and all that, I don't know if that's necessarily all Perry or not, but it, again, it's like, it's so difficult to parse between them. Cause like the only people that know that know that are people that are in the Knicks front office. Like anyone else that tells you, they know it's only hearsay probably like even the most connected insider wouldn't know the, you know, the intimate details of that because the Knicks are traditionally stingy with, you know, details coming out of the front office. So I like my only stance that I can come up with at this point is like, it's not worth getting mad about because Perry is a well-connected basketball guy. Um, and ultimately he has a new boss now. So it's not like he's going to be running, even if he had tons and tons of say in the moves before, it's not like he's going to have you know, unrestricted free reign to do whatever he wants uh, and build the team exactly how it has been for the last couple of years. But yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess that's just me. Hopefully, like, Leon Rose is, you know, a strong enough personality to put the kibosh on something like if he was like, yeah, let's pick up Alfred Payton's option. And hopefully Leon Rose is like, uh-uh, like, we just drafted a point guard if that ends up happening, which I think it will. And we have Frank Nokin on the roster still. We have Dennis Smith Jr. on the roster still that, you know, we may as well at least see what we have. We hopefully just signed Kadeem Allen to a one-year contract, you know. Um, hopefully that's kind of where we end up. But I guess time will tell as far as that's concerned. Yeah, but, I, I guess my, my closing point would be like, I, again, I, I don't – I personally, I, I don't really buy that he's a long-term solution. But I just – I don't think with everything going on right now, it would have been feasible to bring in someone else is, is exactly. sort of the sum of where I stand. Yeah. Exactly. Like – Yeah, it it would be so hard to integrate somebody when you're trying to get them integrated into a new front office and all you can do is do Zoom meetings with them from wherever they happen to be stranded at the moment. Um, And, and, you know, that's that's a tough way to run an NBA team. I get the feeling that the Knicks aren't holding in-person meetings, but they at least know that they're in the same city in the same time zone, (laughs) you know, um, makes life a little bit easier as far as that's concerned. Uh, But, yeah, I am. I'm ready to move on. Uh, I think we've given enough time to this so we can take a quick break and then come back and we'll get into the best moments of the five best moments with honorable mentions of the Knicks from the 1950s through the 1990s. Let me tell you about my secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. It's hard to find the time to sit down to read and learn more. When you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development. There is an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information, 
from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Successful people, like business leaders, are well known for reading a lot of books. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute, on your lunch break, or while you exercise. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, and history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists, as well as classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had the time to. Personally, I've been using Blinkist when I've been taking walks, because it's important to walk right now. Make sure... Make sure you guys are getting outside, but you don't have to just go outside and walk around. You can put an earbud in and learn something while you're walking, you know, while you're taking in nature or, you know, the city street or, you know, whatever it is, wherever you live. And, you know, if you're just burning some time, you may as well learn something while you're doing it. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com NBA and try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com NBA to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com NBA. All right, welcome back in to Locked on Knicks. Uh, we are now getting into our top moments of the pre-2000s and 2010s for the Knicks. Now, the reason we did that is because we sat down and we realized, like, if you were making five best moments in Knicks history, they all happened in the 90s or before. It, there's no way that you could put anything from the last two decades into a top five list. So we actually got a really special guest uh, coming on tomorrow that is going to be a two-part special, I think, uh, of Seth Rosenthal of Posting and Toasting fame, created the blog way back when and ran it for a number of years. And he's now a video producer at SB Nation. Uh, he came on with us because he was blogging about the team from 2007 through, I think, 2017 uh, and you know, had a great perspective on a lot of those moments. So we were able to give a little bit of shine to the Knicks teams that some of us, it's all we've really known. Uh, we never really knew the glory years. Like Gavin and I, I, I know, you know, we're both sort of in that boat. So today we're going over the the glory years, though, of the 90s, the even a little bit from the 80s, the, the 50s, there was some stuff, um, and obviously the 70s, which was like the golden era of the Knicks. Uh, Gavin, we could start this honorable mention, I think, with the dunk, right? Uh, John Starks drives baseline, uh, game two of the 93 Eastern Conference Finals, hammers home a dunk, quote unquote, on Michael Jordan, although it wasn't really on Jordan, and, uh, you know, ends up helping propel the Knicks to a 2-0 lead in that series, which they ultimately lost, but that was sort of a big moment for the Knicks to set the momentum for them to make a finals run the next year. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was kind of the moment that, I mean, obviously I knew the highlight, but I didn't really fully know the context for that, that I think I learned the most about and really changed my perspective. Um, I mean, I mean to have that kind of play in such a big game at such a crucial moment, because remember 50, 
seconds left. I think Jordan just scored on the other end. The, the Knicks are only up by three. So if you miss, you know, you you have like the ultimate killer in NBA history on the other side of the floor. He's going to find a way to hit the shot and, and make you pay for it. And, and Starks just comes down, totally toasts B.J. Armstrong, just leaves him in the dust with a little hezzy move. Uh, shout out to uh, uh, Pat Ewing, who we're going to talk about um, a little later in this segment uh, for setting up a slightly illegal screen. He kind of kind of bumps, he kind of nudges Armstrong into the court. And, and then for him to just rise up with a lefty tomahawk, mostly over Horace Grant. It was it was a pretty, pretty dirty play. But uh, what was interesting about this that I found out that I, I really had had no clue was that Jeff Van Gundy actually credits this moment, Alex, with permanently changing NBA defenses and the series, but I think more importantly, defenses long-term. This was uh, via Beckley Mason, who wrote an article about it for ESPN back in 2012. And the quote from Van Gundy is, uh, that was the first time late in the fourth quarter that I'd ever seen in the NBA any team force the ball to the baseline in the side pick and roll. Um, and he, he went on to say, I know they weren't well-coordinated, and that's what led to the dunk, but I think it turned the series around from for them and basically from that point forward the Bulls started like forcing just about every side pick and roll to the baseline and that that totally um discombobulated Starks who for the rest of the series ironically after that big moment he averaged uh more than six turnovers a game in four straight losses and his scoring and assist numbers just went down the drain and and it it really uh, according to um Mason like just set the tone for NBA defenses from that point forward and it was kind of the forebearer, ironically enough, of uh, maybe future Knicks coach Tom Thibodeau's defense in Chicago that further revolutionized the NBA. I mean, now um, he's kind of associated with screaming ice, ice from the uh, baseline, which essentially is, is telling his team like to force the pick and roll um, outside and not let a guard get to the middle where he, he can kind of collapse the defense and kick out to shooters. And, and with the way the Suns revolutionized offense in the mid to late uh, 2000s, that was sort of the answer throughout the NBA. And I think this was a technique that was used throughout the league sparingly, but it, it, it's interesting. It's kind of the inverse of uh, three-point shooting, or at least the defensive version of, of three-point shooting in that it was this thing that was clearly good, but teams didn't necessarily realize like, oh wait, we should be doing this good thing every single time. We should be pushing it to such an extreme because there aren't necessarily diminishing returns on doing it a whole lot. And, and in kind of a preview for our podcast tomorrow, um, Beckley was talking about how in 2012, like the Knicks went on a winning streak where they, when they kind of had the perfect counter to this, which is like a high level pick and roll point guard, a great rim roller and a shooter on the perimeter. And, and they had that seven game winning streak where they were just running everything through Jeremy Lin, Tyson Chandler and Steve Novak was spacing from the perimeter. And he talks about how when Carmelo Anthony and Amari Stoudemire came back, from injury, it, it kind of ruined it because they lost that offensive rhythm. So I, I know that that was a lot more long-winded than you were probably hoping for, Alex. But I, I just thought it was fascinating how JVG, like a guy who's, I mean, one of, it's like a better idea for putting this in context than anyone, having coached that team and then being around the modern NBA, um, credits that single play with changing sort of the trajectory of NBA defenses for the next 25 years. Yeah, certainly. Um and, you know, I, I you probably did more research into it than I did. Uh, I've always just sort of known it as this huge play in Knicks history, which it's kind of funny. It's like most most huge moments in Knicks history after the actual championship, you know, seasons are just these huge moments that almost led to a championship. And that was one of them, uh, putting the Knicks up 2-0 on the Bulls, 
was a big deal, even though the Bulls eventually won that series. Uh, that was a big moment for the Knicks, I think, to prove that they could hang. And then, you know, the next year they obviously made it to the finals. And that was a big deal for them as well, going seven games uh, against the Houston Rockets and almost getting the Knicks their third championship. Uh, the next honorable mention uh, I had down is uh, Bernard King in 1983 to 84. Uh, he leads the Knicks over the Pistons in the first round and took the Celtics who were extremely good back then uh, to seven games in the Eastern conference semis, which I mean, a lot of people will talk about Bernard King in the same breath as Mello. And I can sort of, I sort of have an appreciation for that in the sense that their games were pretty similar. And Mello obviously credits King with being a big influence uh, in his game but, like, ultimately, when I look at Bernard King's tenure, I don't really think of it. I, you know, I, I think that he was a good player for a few years uh, with the Knicks. But, you know, ultimately, his Knicks career, because of injuries and whatever else, was only about three seasons. Um, but this was definitely the highlight of his time in New York, uh, despite the fact that the next year he set the Knicks single season scoring record uh, at over 32 points per game. The team itself was not actually that good that next year. Uh, and so, you know, this one, I think th- this year, I think was more the highlight of his next tenure, Gavin. Yeah. I, I would say I'd argue at his peak, he was like a definitively better player than Carmelo Anthony again, r- relative to the times, obviously uh, Melo had a more expansive and modern skill set, but um, we, we could just focus in on that 83, 83, 84 season, because I, I know I'm going back and reading about him. Like I'm, kind of stunned and like my dad growing up because this was sort of the peak of his Knicks fandom like drove this home to me that like he was legitimately like a top five player in the league and like my dad would argue like probably the best Nick that he's ever seen and, and he was kind of um when, when we had these like long form podcasts in the 70s and the 90s like he was the one sort of lost guy in the middle there um, when the Knicks weren't very good for most of the late 70s and, and the vast majority of the 80s that I I kind of want to talk about with so maybe maybe it's worth bringing Harvey back on to to just talk about Bernard King because I think he was covering the teams at the time, but, but the guy was just ridiculous. I mean, finished um, runner up for MVP that season, obviously second best finish of, of any Nick ever outside of Willis Reed, who actually won it um, that postseason over a 12 game run. Alex averaged 35 points, six rebounds, three assists per game on 57% from the field, which I think, um, I mean, you, you could argue just because of the stakes, it doesn't necessarily match what, what Willis Reed and, and Clyde did on those title runs, but um, just in terms of an individual effort, um, I, I'd say the best postseason any Knicks player has ever had. And the guy was just a, a totally unstoppable scorer. The quote from Larry Bird in, in his biography is the best scoring machine I've ever seen. Um, he was just a monster athlete before tearing his ACL. And people like kind of forget, but like the, the time he missed was on both ends of his career because he, he had substance abuse issues in like the late 70s and early 80s that affected so many of the best guys in the NBA. Like it's really a lost generation of superstars when you look at guys like David Thompson and, and just a, a lot of different players throughout that era. He by, by the time his career was over, he missed pretty close to 400 games, which is almost five full seasons. Um, I, I think without the injury and without the substance abuse issues, he goes down as one of the best scorers in league history uh, could dominate people with his first step, had a crazy, crazy turnaround jump shot. And when people overplayed his turnaround jump shot, he was such a good athlete. He would just kind of pivot around it and just drive and dunk. 
And I, I think the greatest testament to his greatness is in 1984, he took a Celtics team that had um, seven guys who made an all-star team at one point in their career and four Hall of Famers, I think, maybe five Hall of Famers. And you, you look at who Bernard King had around him. I, I literally I, I had the list up in front of me. It's in Bill Simmons' book of basketball. His teammates were um, Bill Cartwright, Chuck Robinson, Daryl Walker, Trent Tucker, Rory Sparrow, Lewis Orr, and Ernie Grunfeld, relative to, again, Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, uh, Danny Ainge, Scott Wedman, Cedric Maxwell. Uh, I know I'm just listing guys. Uh, Dennis Johnson. It, it was just a total mismatch. And he took that Celtics team to seven games. And it just made me think, Alex, like of all the like great players we've had recently, like I, I was looking at like Tracy McGrady in particular, who like couldn't overcome like having um, opponents with far more well-rounded teams. And like for King to take one of the more loaded teams in NBA history to seven games with no one around him. Like, I, I just kind of think that's one of the better accomplishments in NBA history that doesn't really get talked about. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, it's, it's probably as much of a Knicks moment as pretty much anything. Um, the Knicks are sort of always in this, even the, the great nineties teams were always sort of in that underdog role. Um, pretty much every, and you know, even their first championship team was an underdog. So it's kind of just like the standard Knicks story. The Knicks are never like the, the favorites and, uh, King certainly made a good case for himself during that postseason. Um, a few other ones to touch on. I figured we should give a little love to the earliest times of the Knicks. It's a little harder to find like good history on them because there wasn't really too much going on, uh, you know, with the NBA early on, like it's hard to find footage. It's hard to, you know, you can find stats and everything, but um, I figured we should shout out Richie Guerin, uh, 29 and a half points per game in the 62 to 63 season, which had previously set the scoring record uh, for the Knicks before King eventually broke it. And it, the only thing with that team is it was, it was pretty bad. It was a pretty bad team <laughs> though. The Knicks did have some good years in the fifties. Um, they had three straight finals appearances from 1951 to 53, uh, which were the second to fourth years of the NBA's existence. The Knicks, uh, if you may remember, are one of the you know core original NBA franchises. Uh, they were in the first seven-game NBA finals versus the Rochester Royals in 1951, uh, in which they almost came back from a 3-0 deficit, which would have immediately made that uh, completely useless as a as a thing uh in the nba and you know that that's like a huge deal in most professional sports of oh man you know there's only been one or two times ever and it takes like forever for that to happen for the first time they almost did it in the second year of nba history um then they went seven games versus uh george mikan's minneapolis lakers in 1952 back when the lakers uh, namesake actually made sense and then a they had a 4-1 loss to the same Minneapolis team in 1953. Um, Gavin, my my question with this one, this is just something I was thinking about, is like, how nice would it be if those three titles had gone the Knicks way? Just so that like, as fans, we could have a little more say in the rings argument. <laughs> because the Knicks are viewed often, you know, as this like legacy franchise and whatever, and you know, despite the fact that they've been awful for a long time in the modern day, 
and never really won anything in the 90s, despite having, you know, good teams that were well-loved by the city and everything. Like, really, the the Knicks, you know, for being one of the original franchises, have a pretty low amount of titles with only the two in the 70s. It would have been kind of nice to, even if it's way back when, when there was only, like, whatever it was, six or eight NBA teams, to just have a couple more titles to sort of hang our hats on. Uh you know, in, in the whole rings argument that always comes up with fandoms and stuff. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think it would almost, and, and it's weird because basketball was so distinctly different back then. Like it was, it was so early. I'd almost give them less weight than the Celtics titles. I still kind of think it's, it's BS. The Lakers uh, count the Minneapolis titles as titles. These are just uh, somewhat of a different franchise. Um, but yeah, that would be that would be kind of nice to say the Knicks had uh, had five championships, even if they occurred in um, what was essentially a different lifetime. I, I did a little little Googling on, on Richie Guerin, still alive, 87 years old. I thought that was cool. So I, I hope he is safe through all this because he is a Knicks legend, the first great Nick. Um, and I, I just going through statistics, I was I was pretty impressed. Shot 57 or sorry, um, shot 44 percent from the field, which was outstanding back then for a guard. Like, you really didn't see that. Bob Cousy was shooting, like, 37 38% from the field for most of his career, and he was considered, like, the most talented player of the very early NBA. So um, I I just, I I think, again, sort of like Bernard King, obviously not nearly as good, but uh, someone who probably gets a little bit historically underrated because he he was just a high, high high-level scorer, kind of, a little like uh, like James Harden-esque in that like his team uh, could never win the big one, but he he was he was a pretty outstanding uh, offensive engine. Uh, Alex, did you want to uh, finish up these runner-ups and get into the uh, good one? I know we got we got what do we have left? We have uh, building the entire team through the draft um, mm-hmm. for the late '60s, um, early '70s that won those two titles. Obviously, um, we're also going to talk about the two trades, but um, you, you listed it all out here. Willis Reed they got in 1964 in the second round. Bill Bradley was a territorial selection in 1965. Cassie Russell out of Michigan went in the first round in 1966. And then uh, two Hall of Famers, uh, only only one of them first playing, but Clyde and Last Dance star Phil Jackson in the first and second round in 1967. Um, but I, I kind of, I almost want to focus more on, on the trades because we, we put this in honorable mention. And I'd agree with you that in the moment, they weren't quite as big as winning, spoiler, a top five moment, winning the Ewing lottery. But I, you, I think you can make the case that trading for DeBusher won them a title, and then trading for Earl Monroe won them a second. Um, and the second one, you could, you could say maybe they win it without Earl the Pearl. But just based on everything we heard from Harvey, uh, crazy rantings and ravings from my dad growing up, I just, I get, I get the feeling that no Dave DeBusher means no initial championship. He, he was just integral to everything they were doing, and. Um, getting Walt Bellamy out of the lineup and allowing Willis Reed to play center and, and almost have the first iteration of true small ball and perhaps even more importantly than that, Alex, true skill ball in the NBA with DeBusher, having five guys who could shoot the basketball on the floor from the perimeter and, and again, just sort of increasing the disparity between them and the rest of the NBA is the smartest team in the league. Remember DeBusher, who, who was, I think, my age at the time, around 24-25, was a player coach for the Detroit Pistons. And um, to add that to what was already such an intelligent team, 
it just took them up to a level. And I think that was ultimately what transformed them from a really talented team to a genuinely historically memorable one. So I would almost I'd almost make a push for that to be a top five moment. But that to me, more than anything else on this honorable mention list, stands out as is really crucial. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I figured my last other honorable mention was just to shout out Anthony Mason. Uh, rest in peace, obviously, uh, it, who was a local kid, got a shot with the Knicks and proved to be a really integral part of what they did uh, in the 90s. Had sort of a pre Draymond Green, Draymond Green kind of game, uh, arguably even more skilled uh, with the ball and everything. And uh, he played fantastic defense on Hakeem in the 94 finals. And, you know, apparently it was actually a better matchup on him than uh, Ewing was, which we learned during our pod with Chris Herring about that team. And uh, yeah, so I just want to shout him out. I think that he was his emergence in playing with him being a local kid was, was a pretty cool story and a pretty cool moment. I think for Knicks fans who to this day are still really bonded to the memory of Mace on the team. Uh, but yeah, I, I can see your point with um, the trades for DeBusher and Monroe. Uh, I guess my justification of not thinking that they would be in the top five is just because ultimately they were a means to an end. Um, so yes, it was a huge moment, but ultimately it led to a bigger moment. So, yeah. you know, the, the big moment is really what matters is, and that's the titles. Um, and I even put the two titles together because I think they're really, they're kind of, they're kind of linked, you know, like the DeBusher trade led to them being good enough to win the 70 title. And they mostly kept that team together and were able to fill it out enough with, uh, you know, by adding Pearl and by adding um, Jerry Lucas to the team to, you know, keep them good enough to win another title. And, you know, they didn't they didn't like three Pete or anything or or, you know, do anything like that. But um, or. You know, I guess realistically, they could have potentially been in the mix for four titles, you know, during that window and took out two of them. But, you know, I think uh, I think that ultimately the trades were a means to get them the championships. And that's why I would put just the championships themselves higher, because you don't really have to you don't really have to glorify the moment of the trade when ultimately, you know what happened with it. You know what I mean? Um, Like, for example, if if, you know. Carmelo had gotten traded to the Knicks and they had gone to like three straight Eastern conference finals or something, but could never get over the hump. Then maybe I'd put the Carmelo trade as higher than the actual Eastern conference finals themselves because it didn't actually pay off, but it, it's, you know, still gave you hope and put you in a position to win for a while. But since ultimately the Knicks did win titles with those, you know, with those players and whatever, I think that the titles just become automatically the most important moment. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, but yeah, so we can uh, we can hop in on the actual moments here. Uh, our number five, and you know, all these we're gonna go, I guess, somewhat brief on these, which it's not to say that they're not worth all the justice that they deserve for being top five moments in you know franchise history. But uh, ultimately, we had really great discussions with some really great guests about most of these moments over the last few weeks. Um, so this first one, the 1999 finals run I had as the number five moment. And we had a great discussion about that with Mark Berman, uh, the New York post. And so if you want to go back and get some more perspective on that, feel free to check out that pod. But 
it was uh it was a great run um you know the they just replayed it on uh msg network a couple weeks ago and it was a joy for me to watch because this was sort of the team that got me into the knicks as a kid um and you know they they just were scrappy and they were they came in the the team was completely rebuilt in the offseason, um, traded away some mainstays. You know, they traded away Charles Oakley uh, to Toronto to get in Marcus Camby, traded away John Starks to Golden State to bring in Latrell Sprewell. Uh, already had Alan Houston in tow, who was kind of still newish blood at that point. Um, and then you had Patrick Ewing still around, Larry Johnson from, you know, a couple years prior as well. And... You know, this team just sort of found just the right mix to make it to the NBA Finals and came in as an eight seed because Sprewell and Ewing had had some injury issues during the year. And the team had had some trouble gelling in a shortened NBA season after the lockout that year. And uh, ultimately, they just put it together, went on a great run. And, um, you know, they beat the one seeded Heat in the first round, which, you know, to talk to Mark Berman, they almost the Knicks almost wanted to like tank their last game so that they could be the eight seed um, to take on the one seed heat. Uh, but initially I initially it was up in the air, whether the heat were going to be the one or two seeds. So like the Knicks were trying to almost strategically plan it so that they could get the heat in the first round because they thought that they could handle them. And they ultimately did handle them, um, took it to five games, which was as far as series went back then. Uh, in the first round, and Allen Houston wins on a runner in game five, uh, going down the lane that bounces up in the air for like 10 minutes and then drops through uh, as Houston was going up for a putback. Then they sweep through the Hawks in the second round and get to the Eastern Conference Finals where they face the Pacers and uh, has the famous Larry Johnson four-point play where he, you know, took a couple fakes on the perimeter and then uh, drove into like what at the time was barely considered a foul. Now would be a clear and blatant foul uh, and pops up a three makes that and sinks the free throw uh, to put the Knicks ahead in that game. And they would end up winning and that helped propel them to winning that series. Then unfortunately get uh gentleman swept in the finals by the Spurs uh, the Knicks were without Patrick Ewing after he hurt his Achilles uh, in that Easter Conference final. He had sort of had it hurting throughout the playoffs, but finally it did him in against the Pacers uh, in that Easter Conference finals. Without him, against Tim, Dun- Tim Duncan and David Robinson in the finals, the Knicks sort of faltered. But ultimately, Gavin, I think this was a really worthy moment. Uh, if for nothing else, like you could argue individually, I think, for if we were just talking about best plays in Knicks history, uh, you could definitely argue Houston's runner and Larry Johnson's four point play were two of the most electrifying and memorable plays in Knicks history that occurred during this finals run. No, absolutely iconic. And and then five years before that, I mean, I think there's a pretty clear consensus. That was the best shot the Knicks have had at an NBA title since 1973, the 94 team. Um, Again, if you want more details on this, we did a beautifully long podcast with Chris Herring of ESPN and 538, uh, who's writing a book on all of this, uh, Blood on the Hardwood, the Playground History of the 1990s New York Knicks. Um, that should be coming out sometime next year, and we hope all of you will buy because it's going to be great. 
Um, but the Knicks finished that season 57 and 25, despite only being the 21st best offense in the league, but were just absolutely dominant on the defensive end of the floor. They set a playoff record that year for most games holding teams under 95 points and most games holding teams under 100 points. Um, were pretty loaded. They had three all stars in Patrick Ewing, who's who's just a little bit past his prime, but still great. Uh, John Starks and of course Charles Oakley. Uh, they beat the Nets 3-1 to one in round one, uh, beat the Bulls, Sands, Michael Jordan, 4-3 to three in round two, and then had an epic series against the Pacers, who they beat 4-3 to three in the Eastern Conference Finals. And, and then, um, I, I didn't totally realize this before we did some research, but even, even though on paper it kind of seemed like the Rockets would have an advantage because Hakeem, for whatever reason, was just quite a bit better than Patrick Ewing at that point, but... The Knicks probably should have won that series. That was that was really like my biggest takeaway from talking to Chris. The Knicks were up 3-2, obviously were, were one John Stark shot away from winning it. Starks had that horrible game seven, but before that was playing at an incredibly high level, super efficient, running the offense, scoring well. Um, and the Knicks just flat out like up and down the roster had more talent. Like you look at that Rockets team, they they really weren't that that great outside of Akeem, but Akeem was so good and they did just enough in the big moments to beat the Knicks, but it, it was one of only two times in NBA history along um, with the 2013 Spurs who fell to the heat that the losing team in the NBA Finals uh, outscored the winning team over the course of the series. So I thought that was a pretty incredible statistic. Gives you an idea of just how close that Knicks team came to finally breaking through after so much heartbreak before that year, so much heartbreak after that year. But it was it was sort of the peak of what was ultimately a great error. And if you want to kind of get a better gauge for why that error is worth remembering, even if you weren't a Knicks fan, uh, Chris does a pretty amazing job of breaking that down on the podcast we did with him. Yep. So then that brings us to our third best moment. And Gavin, this one is this one is hilarious. You almost can't find a video of this on YouTube without it saying rigged NBA lottery or, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the fix was in basically. Uh, and that is the Knicks winning the draft lotto uh, in 1984 or sorry, 1985 for the right to draft Patrick Ewing. Uh, this was huge for the franchise. The Knicks were, you know, they, they had just come off of a really good season for Bernard King. Um, but, you know, the team itself was floundering and, you know, Patrick Ewing was considered at the time to be, I mean, Michael Jordan had just had his rookie season the year before, just to put this in perspective, and had, you know, torn the league up. And you had Hakeem Olajuwon just came in the league the year before, also tore the league up. And yet still, Patrick Ewing coming into this draft was viewed as like the Messiah prospect. Um, Ultimately, it never quite came to be that way for him in his NBA career, but he he was viewed as like, you know, at the time when he was coming out of Georgetown, people thought that he was going to be the most important NBA prospect maybe ever to come out of the draft. Bill Russell um, was the comparison defensively, and, and people thought he would be better on offense, just just to put it in context. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, it was insane. The hype for Patrick Ewing was unlike, I mean, it, probably if we were going to put it in context for like something somewhat contemporary, it would be like Zion or LeBron Yeah, um, was how Ewing was viewed. And so back in the old days, you know, now it's so funny that the NBA conducts the lottery behind closed doors. There's, you know, apparently a few 
I think it's, is it one observer from each team is allowed in there who's then not allowed to speak to anybody from their team or whatever, but just so that everybody sees that it's a a neutral process. But they do this whole drawing with this like accounting firm that oversees it. Um, I think they use they use lottery ball tumblers. I, I don't think it's all done like by computer or anything, um, but they no. do it all behind closed doors. So it's like audited properly and whatever and observed by all the teams back in the day. They did it right on live television and there was no lottery odds numbers. There were seven teams that were eligible to potentially get the number one pick and their names were all put in this big plastic ball, this big hamster ball with a, you know, a crank on it, like a, like a bingo number uh, puller. And, you know, they put the, these envelopes in and then David Stern reached his hand in, grabbed an envelope, pulled it out and it had the Knicks name on it. Now, the big controversy with this is there's two prevailing theories. One was that uh, the envelope was put in a freezer for, you know, hours beforehand. So it would be cold to the touch. So David's turn would know which one to grab because the league apparently wanted to give the Knicks the number one pick here and, you know, shove them back into relevance with Patrick Ewing. Uh, And then the other theory is that if you watch the video, apparently the uh, the envelope was thrown in with a little extra force to give it a crease on the corner uh, so that Stern would know which one to pick. I rewatched the video right before we recorded this. I I could see if it was cold that he would have been able to do that. I don't know how he would have been able to perceive a bend in the corner so quickly because it didn't even really seem like he took a long look at what he was doing. And he reaches in, grabs a bundle of about three envelopes, turns them over, and then takes the top one, which was the Knicks, which sort of seems like, I don't know, that's like a strategy I would do if I was, like, pulling a random number out of a hat. I would probably grab, like, two of them and then, you know, like, without looking, drop one of them, you know, whatever. But whatever your stance is on it, the Knicks win this draft lottery. They get Patrick Ewing, who winds up being the face of the franchise for, like, 17 years i think in total before he was eventually traded um huge huge moment for the knicks uh and for the league and one that sort of lives on in infamy as people assume that the knicks were gifted uh this number one overall pick to draft patrick ewing i mean gavin obviously neither you or i have any first uh, you know firsthand recollection of this uh i'm i'm like five, six years older than you, and even I wouldn't be born for another five years <laughs> until after this is over. So I just looking back, I just find it to be kind of a comical moment now to look back on that now we can look at it with hindsight and it's like, well, it doesn't really taint anything because the Knicks didn't ultimately win anything with Patrick. So it's not like the NBA gifted the Knicks like like Michael Jordan, who would have gotten them six titles or something. Um you know, it ultimately, it just led to a really fun era for the Knicks. And I think that now we can all just kind of look back on it, whether it was rigged or not, and almost have a laugh about it, you know, about if it was rigged, cool, who cares? The Knicks got to have a fun team for a while, but ultimately it didn't affect the entire structure of the NBA in any way. It was just kind of cool for Knicks fans. Yeah, no, it's I you, you do a great job summing it up. Um, in that sense, it's a good thing the Knicks didn't win a title because I'm sure people would, would go back and People would try that. to cheapen it for years. Yeah. I mean, people will do anything to cheapen anything that the Knicks do, good sure. or bad. You know, Well, not bad, but good. Yeah, they'll have to the Knicks do. Yeah. They, they, and then they amplify the bad stuff. But 
had they won titles with Ewing, people would have probably tried to be like, oh, there needs to be an asterisk on that. Like, they should have yeah. never had Ewing. He should have been a pacer or whatever. <laughs> well, can you imagine if he had, like, actually lived up to the hype and, and went down as one of the 10 greatest players ever. And, I mean, to be fair, again, Patrick Ewing, great career. Don't don't want to dissuade, but but not quite what people expected. Like, he's probably top 50 guy ever. Um, and people, people genuinely, to your point, Alex, thought he was going to be one of the 10 greatest players of all time. And you could just imagine the fixation on that story because it's already sort of like one of the great NBA conspiracy theories. But if he had led the Knicks to three titles and had sort of been the bane of Michael Jordan through his career and those guys just had incredible battles year after year and Ewing actually won some of them, um, it would it would be there. I think there'd be multiple books written on that lottery. I'll say I'll say that much. All right. uh, And there was like uh, he did. Uh, I'll just list off his career stats real quick. I feel like we haven't given enough love to Patrick with all this all time stuff that we did. He averaged 21 points, 10 rebounds, two assists, uh, one steal and two and a half blocks per game for his career uh, and shot 50 percent from the field over the course of his entire career. Um, Pretty great stuff. I mean, he was. He's definitely he's definitely a legend. He's definitely an all-timer. You know, to your point, he's definitely I think a top 50 player um, in NBA history. But yeah, it ultimately like just not quite um, just not quite the savior that everybody thought he would be. But at the time, I don't blame people for thinking that way. I mean, there was the there was the quote in the Last Dance uh, from Clyde. Uh, you know, when they were showing in one of the first episodes about. Jordan being drafted, you know, and there was there was Hakeem uh, got taken one, which no, that was completely defensible. Hakeem wound up being a, an all timer himself. Uh, but then Sam Bowie going before Jordan because Portland needed a big man and everybody thought that you won with a big man back then. And there was like the Clyde quote in the last dance of him being like, well, I don't know about Jordan. You know, he's not a he's not big enough to be the best player on a team or whatever, you know, because everybody back then. It was like the complete opposite of today. Everybody back then said, oh, you win with good big men. You don't win with good wings. Um, whereas now in the NBA, it's like big men are like are like what running backs are in the NFL now, where it's like it's almost like you can interchange them. Uh, and all you need is really just one that's unless they're like the generational types like Anthony Davis or something. Um, but, yeah, it, great career for Patrick Ewing. And ultimately now, like I said, uh, an ultimately inconsequential, not inconsequential, but ultimately like a thing that didn't shift the entire balance of the league for, yeah. you know, a whole generation. So something that even if it was fixed, we can look back on with kind of a fun, uh, a, a fun perspective now, I think. Right. So. All right. Uh, number two, uh, one of, I would just say the iconic moments in NBA history, Willis Reed coming out of the tunnel for game seven, um, I, again, you can go back to our Harvey Ariton pod, Ariton, excuse me. I mean, he, he goes into it in pretty um, explicit detail, but just, I mean, he, he should not have been able to play. I think it was, it was a torn abductor was the injury. And you go back and watch the game and he's basically just walking up and down the court. And to me, like my favorite part about that whole thing, I mean, obviously just the initial reaction from the garden but just the quotes from guys like Clyde saying, like, you could look at the Lakers and you knew we won the game already the second he walked out. And it was this great mind game. And it it sort of felt like Will Chamberlain was was the superstar in NBA history, perhaps most suscept, susceptible to that. 
because for years, Bill Russell had just been screwing with the guy. Like he he would have him over for dinner, whatever he was in town. He would basically turn him into his best friend. He would let uh, Will score like 60 on him during regular season games. Then the finals would come and Russell would ratchet up the intensity like 200 percent. And Wilt, I mean, he put up counting stats, but he was never, ever able to beat him. And I think Willis, this was, I mean, it was almost for, I, I feel like for Wilt, like kind of seeing the ghost of Bill Russell pass in that it was Reed making this like incredible team for sacrifice that Chamberlain for all the talent that he had never totally seemed to understand or comprehend. And that sounds a little melodramatic but you go back and read about him that that was sort of like the flaw in what was physically like the most talented player in NBA history and Willis kind of just psyched him out it was like this all-time like mental like fucking I don't know I don't really have a better word for it like in NBA history and it's pretty incredible that like he he goes out he hits the two jumpers and that's essentially it and the Lakers are just dead in the water and obviously like the Knicks were a great team Clyde had one of the greatest closeout games in NBA Finals history, if not the greatest closeout game in NBA Finals history. So it was, it was more than just that. But it, it's it's so interesting how that what was ultimately, I would argue, a gesture, because I don't think Willis Reed as a basketball player changed that game. I, I think won the Knicks an NBA title against a team that, for all the talent the Knicks had, was ultimately more talented. Again, you could argue three of the top 20 players in NBA history on that Lakers squad, and it just didn't matter because Willis Reed got in Will Chamberlain's head before that game. Yeah, and just to put it in perspective, I mean, Willis Reed, you know, from quotes and everything else that have come out, it sounded like without the help of the various shots that he was taking, uh, you know, directly into his hip, he could barely walk. Um, And, you know, to to put it in perspective, it would almost be like, like with what he did, he essentially – if you read about it in when the garden was eaten, and I think we talked about it a little bit on the, um, on the podcast with Harvey as well. Like he took like an obscene amount of, of, uh, shots into his hip. It was like, uh, almost like cortisol. It was some other like stronger version of cortisol. He took something like eight shots of that into his hip over the course of a couple days to get ready for this game. And, you know, it took a numbing agent, you know, to basically just make it so he couldn't feel his hip uh, going into this game as well. And, you know, apparently after they won the championship, those sort of wore off and uh, he had to start doing appearances like the very next day, uh, you know, like champion. There was apparently they they had had an appearance set up for him, win or lose, that he had to go to the next day. And he showed up for it, you know, limping right into it. But, um, you know, it it was extreme. It would be almost like if if when Clay Thompson tore his ACL last year in the finals. And I mean, I actually don't put it past Clay Thompson that he might've done this. Um, Cause he seemed like he was ready to keep playing after he tore his ACL on that play. But it would be like, if he tore his ACL and was like, give me a cortisol shot. I'm going back out there. Like give me a cortisol shot and tape it up and I'm going to go out there and play um, was basically the same type of energy, but it was at the beginning of the game and like you said, it was it was just a huge psych out where, uh, the, you know, it made the Lakers feel like they had just seen a ghost because he'd had to miss game six. And they probably assumed he was going to be out game seven as well. And, you know, he came back and 
actually was somewhat productive too, which probably also threw them for a loop that he made those first two jumpers and he, he didn't just play like a ceremonial couple minutes. Like he actually played a decent number of minutes in that game uh, on one leg basically. And, you know, managed to, even with all the height and everything else that he gave up to Wilt Chamberlain, managed to put together a good game on one leg against him. Uh, that takes us, though, it bleeds pretty much right into our number one moment, uh, which, again, we talked about plenty on our podcast with Harvey Ariton, uh, the 1970, and I, I put them together. I figured they just, they kind of go hand in hand. The 1970 and 73 titles, Gavin, uh, I think, I don't think you can argue at all that they are the two top moments in Knicks history. Um, championships are always the top moments, and the Knicks don't have, like, 15 to choose from. We got two, <laughs> and that's it. Um, so I think if I was going to rank them, I would probably put the 1970 title higher, uh, just because of, as we mentioned, the Willis-Reed moment, the fact that they were sort of underdogs in that series. Um and had come out of nowhere. It was like Clyde's coming out party is like a true top player in the NBA. Um, it was Willis Reed, you know, putting it all out there. And, you know, Willis Reed was far diminished by the time they got to that second title because of injuries and stuff. So he was able to put together that, that great run to get the first title um, second time around, you know, he was still effective, but he was not the like superstar that he once was. Um, but the second team was one of, I mean, you've mentioned a number of times, one of the most star studded title teams you could ever hope to see. Um, you know, what was the total number? Six, 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 six all, all famers? famers, not counting Holtzman and Phil Jackson and Phil Jackson, who went in for coaching eventually. Yeah. Um, you know, between Earl Monroe, Clyde, Willis Reed, uh, Dave DeBusher, and Bill Bradley and Jerry Lucas. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah insane lineup, you know, sort of like a one, of, I guess, sort of in a way, one of the original super teams, uh, despite the fact that, you know, they took, they took a good amount of time to gel, you know, it took Earl Monroe over a full season to be able to really integrate into what the Knicks were trying to do. Uh, he came off the bench his whole first year with the team, um, or like most of the whole first year. And, you know, it was just it was a huge adjustment, but this team ultimately put it together and won a championship, won a second one for Reed, um, you know, who was, as I mentioned at that time, already pretty diminished. And yeah, it was just great. Um, also, the cultural implications of the first title were pretty great, too. Um, we talked about that a lot on the Harvey pod. It was during a tough time in American history. You know, the Vietnam War was going on and there was a lot of um civil rights activism going on in the country at the time you know in different parts of the country a lot of animosity between white people and black people um and rightfully so obviously and you know this incredibly diverse team in you know 1970 managed to win an nba title and and overcame their own sort of racial issues as we learned uh in the interview with Harvey and from his book, you know, that there was, there was the instance, at least one instance, you know, where Cassie Russell had a, a bad experience with some uh, Michigan state cops that racially profiled him and came to practice on a war path against Bill Bradley and the other white players. And then had a, a racially charged moment with Willis Reed, who, you know, he called an uncle Tom for trying to confront him about, how he was treating his other teammates and um 
you know, it, they managed to ultimately pull together. And they, I mean, if you listen to Clyde even talk about them now, they became really all lifelong friends uh, on that team. And, you know, it, they weren't just teammates, like they actually loved each other and, you know, really developed a bond on the court that translated to off the court, too. So really one of the one of the most special teams, I think, um, in NBA history um, and not just Knicks history. Yeah. And the most wins in the league from 1969 to 1974, which I, I was just thinking about that. I know, obviously, the NBA was was quite a bit smaller back then, but. Just just the idea that the Knicks could win the most games in the NBA over a five year stretch, like not just a one year fluke, that kind of consistency for half a decade just just blows me away. Like we, we would we would kill for the Knicks to be in the top 10 in the league and wins over a five year stretch. And I mean, for them to do that was nothing short of incredible. Um, again, we, we've gone so, so in depth on these teams. I, I feel like you, you did a good job putting a punctuation point there, Alex, on, on all the podcasts we did with Harvey, which again, if you missed, highly encourage you to go back and uh, remember a, a, a better time in Nick's history. And I mean, pending anything great in our lifetime, maybe like the best error that will ever be for the Knicks. And it's going to, it's going to be hard to replicate. I don't know if, I mean, I mean, just with, with 30 teams in the league and like the advances in scouting and stuff, I, I don't know if any team will ever have six hall of famers relatively in their prime, um, simultaneously again. So it was, it was pretty special. And the fact that all, and, and I mean, you've seen, there are like other teams in league history where you could list similar talents. Like I was just talking about how the Lakers had three of the top 20 players of all time. The Houston Rockets, they were all past their prime, but like for that one year where they had like Pippen, Barkley and Akeem, um, they nominally had three of the greatest players of all time. Uh, the Heat, the Warriors, um, you're never, I don't think you're going to see six Hall of Famers that fit together again. Like that's just, that's just not going to happen. Who's who had such a, a team first ethos and like none of those guys cared about stats. And you could, I mean, a lot of teams can say that, but when no one's averaging over like, what was it like 17, 18 points per game? Like it's, it's pretty obvious. Like that was actually the case. And I think that's, that's ultimately what, what kind of made them special. And that's, it's a pretty good place to uh, wrap this up, Alex. Yeah, I think I just wanted to know. I was just thinking about it when you said it. I think one of the last times you could really point out a team that was sort of similar to them in the the cast that they had was probably the what year was it? Was it the year that the Pistons lost or that the Pistons beat the Lakers, I think, where the Lakers had Shaq, Kobe, um Carl, Carl Malone, Malone, Gary Payton, and did they have one other? That was like a future Robert, Hall of Famer. might have been on that team. So that's yeah, I, I, or he was definitely on the team. I don't know if I'll call him a Hall of Famer, but... Yeah, no, it was, um, it was those four guys. Yeah, but those four guys. I mean, that was the last time I could think of those sort of sort of similar to the Knicks situation where they had a mix of... Because you could definitely argue some of them were past their prime. Like Willis Reed definitely was. I would say that Lucas was sort of on the tail end of his career, but like still really, really good. Yeah. Um, I was gonna, yeah. You, you, you could think of the... I mean, the Warriors the last few years probably had four Hall of Famers on the team on their prime. Oh, definitely. I know, yeah. I know Draymond play or maybe a notch, considered a notch below, like some of the guys in the Lakers, but yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. I was trying to think of one where there was like some like sort of past their prime guys, but guys that had like their reputation right, right, right. preceded them kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's all for today's episode from us. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this. As I mentioned, we will be back uh, tomorrow with Seth Rosenthal of Posting and Toasting fame, who founded that site and wrote about the Knicks for a long time. And uh, we're going to be breaking down the top 
five moments, along with a number of honorable mentions uh, in the first part of a two-part podcast of breaking down the 2000s and 2010s, which we thought deserved sort of their own show. And then uh, right now, though, we are going to end it for our show today. But uh, immediately following this, uh, we are going to have just a quick segment from the national Locked On NBA show, Rejecting the Screen. So you guys can get a taste for that and hopefully uh, start listening to that show as well as Locked On Knicks in your daily rotation. So stay tuned. A quick segment from uh, Rejecting the Screen coming up next. Uh, But for us, peace out for today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hey, it's Noah Kozlov from Rejecting the Screen on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam Stanko and I get together twice a week to talk hoops with folks who have touched the NBA on all sorts of levels, from all-stars, coaches, executives, and media members. Recently, the number three pick in the 2006 NBA draft, Adam Morrison, joined us to tell a story about how Kobe Bryant, his former Lakers teammate with whom he won two rings, went above and beyond to lift his spirits. It was a year after I was out, and so I wasn't playing, obviously, and I was really depressed, and I was basically a hermit in my own house, and I was, didn't go out in the community at all, and, and, you know, if you did, it was one of people asking you, why aren't you playing, and I was, you know, I'm 26 at the time, or whatever I was, and, you know, number three pick, and just really low point in my life, and I get a text from Robert Laura, the the Lakers security and was Kobe's like one of his best friends and he said hey what's your address uh I got something in the mail for you and I get the package and it's um an autographed jersey from Didier Drogba um who is my favorite player I'm a Chelsea fan you know it's from Kobe and game worn jersey you know signed Didier Drogba to Adam best wishes and I always thought Kobe you know, made a phone call, which is, would be fine. It's still cool as shit. It's unbelievable. The night he passed, I'm scrolling through, reading everything, and I'm emotional. And on Chelsea's, you know, Instagram page, it's him with Didier Drogba holding up a jersey, and it says, to Adam, best wishes. So he went up to my favorite player, got uh-huh. it signed for me without me even asking, and sent it to me when he knew I was was low. That's that's what Kobe Bryant was, man. He was just one of those dudes who understood his own aura. When four-time All-Star Sean Marion hung out with us, not only did he tell us that he tried to recruit Kobe Bryant to the Suns the summer that the Suns ended up signing Steve Nash and Quentin Richardson, he also told us that his 2006 Suns team should have won the title. In the 2011 preseason, his Mavericks teammate Jason Terry was so confident they'd win it all, he got a tattoo of the trophy. We was at Deshaun Stevenson's house. We had a game in Orlando, and um, we went to his house and uh, a few through the team, and uh, we was over having bar eating and stuff. And then this tattoo guy came over there, and Jet guy tattooed a tra- trophy on his on his bicep. I was like, damn, dude. I was like, for real. I was like, okay, okay. I'm loving it. I'm loving the the, the confidence and the swag we have right now. So like, just let alone don't nobody else know. Don't nobody else in the world know we do we doing this and we doing this right now. Because everybody. Everybody in the league has aspirations. A lot of teams have aspirations to win championships, but it ain't but maybe a handful that actually actually can do it. You know what I'm saying? So we was one of those teams, and, like, we're sitting there going through this process and looking at this, and, uh, yeah, we was like, yeah. Did he tell you, hey, I'm going to get a tattoo of the trophy? Did you know as it was happening? Or once he got it, he showed you, hey, it's 
got a tattoo of the trophy. Well, it was called it was called all kind of one sequence. We been, he's like, we won the championship this year. I'm about to get a trophy right now. <laughs> we were like, okay, that's what's up. <laughs> I mean, you don't get no better than that. Come on now, you don't get no better. Yeah, than that. does it? Does don't it. get no better than that. Kevin Willis never did win a ring, but he was an all-star and was one of the most dominant rebounders of his era. He spent year 16 of his career with the Toronto Raptors when Tracy McGrady was in year two and Vince Carter was a rookie. As expected, he had some pretty good advice for those kids. They used to call me OG, old head, things like that. <laughs> and I was, I think I was in my 15th year or somewhere up in there. And it was like, yeah, man, I used to tell him and T-Mac. I say, T-Mac, first of all, you need to, you need to stop falling asleep on the bench and practice. You need to, you got to stay awake. You, you, you keep falling asleep. I just tell him and Vince, you guys rather hope that you get the 15 years because you, you little snot-nosed rookies, but, you know, they, they, were, they were great, great rookies, great talent. Speaking of vets and rookies, when Suns legend Eddie Johnson got traded to Seattle, Gary Payton was a rookie point guard, and since everyone loves a good one about GP running his mouth, Eddie delivered. And I remember one day at practice, I was there for about two weeks. And I remember he kept disrupting practice. And Gary's a smart guy. He had, he had a right to talk in that regard because I got to know him. He really knows the game, obviously. He's a Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest defenders ever now. But at the time, he was a rookie. And rookies were not supposed to talk under my watch. Right. So that's, that's what it was for me. And I just couldn't get over the fact that this rookie kept talking, you know, and I let it go for two weeks. And I asked Nate McMillan, I said, is it a point in time, man, when you all like going to say something to him? And Nate was like, man, you know, you know, Nate kind of shook it off. And I said, well, I'm going to say something. And lo and behold, one practice, he's got the yapping and, you know, coaches going over stuff and he yapping, he yapping. And I just finally said, would you shut the F up? About 15 years later in Seattle, P.J. Carlesimo was coaching the Sonics with rookie Kevin Durant. When P.J. came on the show, he revealed how ahead of the curve his staff was when K.D. was on the floor. One good thing we really did with him was we exposed him to a lot of things in terms of we played him at two, we played him at three, we played him at four. We put him in pick and rolls. We encouraged him to shoot threes. It's his only bad three-point percentage. If you look at his percentage year by year uh, in the NBA, it's far and away the lowest one. But again, uh, in those days, it was even a bigger jump from college three to NBA three. And Kevin didn't shoot a lot of threes uh, at Texas. And we, we had him do that. And at times we were criticized, like, why are they playing this guy at guard? Why, like, why are they putting him in pick and rolls? You know, why are they letting him dribble the ball up the court? Because he could. Staying with coaches, Brendan Haywood won a title with the Mavs in 2011. And when he joined LeBron in the Cavs under David Blatt, it was obvious when a head coaching change was needed. We could see late in ball games, if he had to draw a play, you could see he was super nervous, his hands would be shaking. He'd have to give the clipboard to Larry Drew. Larry Drew would draw the plays up. And when you see that, you understand. Like, this dude ain't ready. He's not ready for this. He's not ready for this. And it's not his fault because he, he thought he was taking on a rebuilding project. And then next thing you know, LeBron James calls up David Blatt and says, I'm coming. And now instead of taking on a rebuilding project with Kyrie and Deion Waiters at the forefront of it, 
and Tristan Thompson, you have LeBron James and Kevin Love there, and now you're competing for a title. Uh, I just don't I, – I think just Coach Black got hit with too much too soon, but it was easy to tell right away that Coach Black was probably in over his head. Just like a head coach can lose a team, a woman can tear one apart as well. Butch Beard was an assistant with the Mavericks in the mid-90s as Grammy Award-winning R&B singer Tony Braxton came in between stars Jason Kidd and Jimmy Jackson. I mean, it was it, it ended up being Jason and Jimmy, all right? Jason, Tony. Tony's not caring about either one of them. And then the team was taking sides. So I'll never forget, we had, we, we, we had a damn team meeting. And I said, guys, it's a woman that's breaking us apart. And if, if the woman is that good, please, I want to see what her mother looks like. Because I want to <laughs> date a mother. Come on. Entertainment and the NBA will always be intertwined. The first to do that on the media side was the New York Post's Peter Vesey, who was also the sideline reporter for the national broadcasts on NBC. We asked Peter about his post-game interview with Carl Malone after the Jazz lost in the finals to the Bulls in 1997. The YouTube clip is titled, Peter Vesey Tries to Get Punched. Carl was always a great interview. He would never not answer a question. You know, we really didn't get along. I... I Disliked him on many levels, respected him on many other levels as a player, but, you know, he was a dirty player. And the first time that they showed it to me, I didn't even remember it. Okay. So I did this interview. I had no agenda. I was just going to ask him some tough questions. And um, I didn't care how tough because I really didn't like him. So, (laughs) but I knew he was going to answer them. (laughs) So, so I, I wasn't, I didn't feel unsafe. And I didn't feel like I was doing something wrong. And it really never, it never dawned on me that that came off the way it did. You know, my son would say to me, I said, wow, what were, you, what were you thinking? I said, I was just doing my job. But I, I, uh, I had no mindset going in other than I knew he was going to answer my question. In 1997, former head coach Hubie Brown was broadcasting for TNT. But five years later, was hired by Jerry West midseason to coach the Memphis Grizzlies. Point guard Earl Watson was in his second year with the team and was thoroughly confused when it all went down. Jerry West introduced UB. I'm 22 years old. We're in Memphis, losing franchise. First time in my life I've ever been a part of anything that was losing. So it was all new to me. Just everything was like new to me. I never, I, it made me, it almost made me sick. He introduces UB Brown and I'm thinking, I got to call Bob because we just hired the TNT guy. This is crazy. <laughs> I didn't know his full resume, right? <laughs> so the first thing he says to us, he takes the podium and he says, first I would like to say, you all are fucking losers. <laughs> None of you are winners. If you was a winner, the other guy wouldn't be packing his stuff with his family, see? You got on fire. You're fucking losers. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner. The Bob that Earl referred to was Bob Myers, his agent at the time and now the president of the Golden State Warriors. Stories like these are a taste of what rejecting the screen sounds like every week. So we hope you'll join us by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, 
follow on Spotify, or download and listen wherever you get your podcasts.